Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good afternoon, everyone. My name's Ailsa Piper. I am a writer and a reader. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you here on the final day of the Sydney Writers' Festival for 2023 to this wonderful session called Wisdom of the Ages, where we'll be considering how learnings from long ago might be applicable, in fact, even essential for now. I would like to acknowledge that we are gathered on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to Elders, past and present, and of course to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here today. So, let me introduce you to our wisdom carriers. On my immediate left, Paul Callahan is an Aboriginal man belonging to the land of the Warramai people, which is around Port Stephens. Paul has held several executive positions in his career, including CEO of New England TAFE, where he had responsibility for 1,200 staff, 23,000 students, and an annual budget of $65 million. A bit different to sitting in a room writing a book. <laughs> he has qualifications in surveying, drafting, commerce, executive leadership, company boards, and executive coaching. He also has a PhD in creative practice, but he says that his most important learning has been going bush with elders. Paul's book, The Dreaming Path, here it is, um, has become a bestseller in Australia and soon is going to be published in France, Germany and the USA, which is really thrilling. And in a lovely piece of timing, The Dreaming Path was announced as the small publisher's adult book of the year at Thursday night's Australian Book Industry Awards. <laughs> Far over there, Bridget Delaney is an author, a journalist and a speechwriter. Her column in the Guardian newspaper called Bridget Delaney's Diary was a touchstone for many readers for eight years and you could hear hearts breaking all around the world when she stopped writing it. She has written four books, This Restless Life, Wild Things and Well Mania, which is now a hugely successful Netflix series which she co-created with Benjamin Law. And now we have the beautiful yellow cover, Reasons Not to Worry, which is her examination and road testing of the teachings of Stoicism. So welcome to you both. Encountering these two books at the same time was a really interesting and challenging and enriching experience. It would be very easy to say, oh, they are in opposition in a way to each other, but actually reading them together made me see that they basically sing from very similar songbooks, albeit perhaps couched sometimes in different notes. Um, for all of us today, I want to start with a quote from Marcus Aurelius, who is one of Bridget's three cool guys of the Stoics. Um, and he says, no role is so suited to philosophy as the one you happen to be in right now, which I found both challenging and also inviting. Bridget, what took you to the Stoics and when? So 2018, I started, you know, I really hadn't thought much about Stoicism. Um, I, I listened to Tim Ferriss's podcast and a, a few other things. Stoicism definitely wasn't for me. And I had this um, weekly column 
I ran out of um, things to write about and <laughs> one of my editors said, oh, I've got a press release from Sussex University. They're doing a thing called Stoic Week. So I thought, oh, this will be... Because I'd just done a week where my mouth was taped shut while I was trying to sleep. Another week of waking up at 4am every day to be like a CEO. Another week of following Mark Wahlberg's diet. Um, so <laughs> I, I thought, why not have a week as a Stoic? And... Um, did, you know, went online, did the course every day, um, was kind of hung over for a lot of it and you know, didn't really understand it and thought it was, uh, you know, overly complex. And so wrote a, basically a bit of a piss take column. And then all these kind of, Stoics don't get angry, but all these um, <laughs> perturbed, mildly perturbed, um, real Stoics got in touch and said, you know, you completely misrepresented this philosophy. And... I took their point and the next year I went back and did Stoic Week again, kind of privately, with a group of friends. We had a, a WhatsApp group and I found it an incredible kind of tool, almost like a medicine. If something was going wrong, we'd look for a Stoic teaching and try and apply it to that problem. Um, well, and I was just going to say too, you were not an obvious candidate because when I was looking at the titles of Bridget's previous books, this restless life wild things and well mania. I mean, you don't, I, I'm interested that your editor thought, oh, this will be for Bridget. Well, they thought it would, I, I would subvert it. So, um, <laughs> but look, we did, we did it a, a second time. It was really great. And then of course the pandemic happened after that. And I, I found that the teachings of stoicism, when I didn't feel like I had a lot of control over my movements or over what was happening with the virus or what was happening in politics. And stoicism was great in um, helping me accept things that were out of my control. So for those, I suspect a lot of you will have read the book or are here because you love the stoics, but can we just set for people the three main ones you talk about, but also where the term stoic came from? Because most of us tend to think of it in the English way of stiff upper lip and be quiet about your problems. Absolutely. So stoic, the word stoic comes from um, the Greek word stoa, which is painted porch, where the philosophers used to meet um, in Athens to discuss the philosophy. So the stoa became, um, you know, the, the descriptor for the stoics. Um, and it's, look, it's around 350 BC. It started in Greece and then it moved to Rome. Um, and the three major Roman stoics that I talk about in this book are Seneca, Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and that is because their work survives and there's some great Greek stoicism but it that work's been lost which is a complete tragedy. Um, so I, I mainly focus on those three guys because that's the work that survives um, but yeah. It's interesting I, I, I suppose everyone can cheapen something and here I go but um, Seneca was a playwright, Marcus Aurelius was an emperor, and Epictetus was a slave. I've learned this from reading the book. And I couldn't help thinking it's like a joke, isn't it? You yeah. Know, I mean, really, a slave, an emperor... And Three a, Stoics walk into walk a bar. Walk into a bar. Yeah. I'd like to have been in that bar. Anyway, I'm, I'm just going to ask you to stay in that bar for a moment with the three of them, although moderation is key. They don't drink very much. Every once in a while, you can go crazy. You can go crazy. Yeah. Um, while we turn our attention now to something that is genuinely ancient. We love to say things are ancient when they're 2,000 years old. Um, Paul, your book draws on 60,000 or so years of story, um, listening and passing on information. 
Can you, or we'll talk about what to call the information in a moment, can you tell us how you started on the path to this book? Because it came out of a pretty tough moment for you, didn't it? Yeah, it did. I'm just thinking about the Stoics in the bar, but <laughs> of course you think about 200 BC and you go, wow, that's a long time ago. But what people don't realise is I can take you to sites just up the road here that are 30 and 40,000 years old mm. and you can stand there and feel them. But yet people think, and, and I've been over to, I love my ancient history and you feel it there, but people don't realise it's here. But in terms of my story, I grew up on, on a mission as a, an Aboriginal person, even though my dad's non-Aboriginal. And the reason that happened was of the racism back in the 1960s. So when mum and dad got married, not one, there was only one white person came to the wedding because, and that was the best man. Dad had 13 brothers and sisters that didn't come because they didn't want him marrying an Aboriginal woman. So I grew up not really feeling connected to my non-Aboriginal side. And so mum, we were on the mission every day and, and quite often, I didn't know this until recently, the welfare used to come and try and take me. Mum said, oh yeah, they used to come all the time to try and take you. But she said, thankfully you were clean and, and you stayed there. So I grew up in that environment, but, but I grew up in a really wonderful environment and a really happy environment at primary school, but then I ended up in high school and I found that horrific. I found I was too white to be black, I was too black to be white, I didn't fit in anywhere, I wasn't one of the popular kids, I felt marginalised, I felt isolated, and the, the grains of self-doubt were embedded within me and they flourished in my 20s where I really had poor self-esteem, I didn't like myself. And I masked all that as we do, as we do. And so now I talk a lot about how we need to let go of that and be vulnerable and not put on masks. And by the time I was 30, I met a lovely lady who still waits for me to come good, sitting in the audience. <laughs> She's been putting up with me for 37 years, and I'm really stoked that one of our three beautiful children are here today. So that was all happening in my 30s, but at the age of 35, my actual birthday, I sat on some steps at University of Newcastle where I was working. And at the time, I had three qualifications, three jobs, a car, a family, a house with water views. But I started to cry and I somehow got home and I curled up in a fetal position and cried for three months. And I realised I was in a really bad place in terms of mental health. I had agoraphobia, depression, anxiety, couldn't leave the house, couldn't talk on the phone, couldn't sleep, couldn't eat. If any of you have gone through that or are going through that, please reach out for help. The only time I was able to leave the house was to seek medical support. All the medicos told me that I had a lifelong condition and that I would never heal. And so I walked down a road one day and I went, well, my wife deserves better than this. She doesn't deserve a lifelong sentence. Today's the day I'm going to kill myself. And at the moment I was about to, thankfully this inner voice, whether it's intuition, whether it's angels, whether it's the spirit ancestors, I don't know. But a voice said to me quite clearly, you don't need to do this. You don't need to believe what those people have told you, you can heal, and when you do, you can help others. And so I thought, okay, I'll do that. And it wasn't straightforward, but I started a healing process. And this is when I was asked to go bush. And people say, what does that mean? <laughs> I didn't know either. <laughs> but I'd grown up a mission knowing I was Aboriginal, but I had no ability to connect to my traditional ways because it was taken from us. And I thought, man, I'm not going to miss this. I'm going to have a go. 
And my mum said, don't do that. They're all liars, they're cheats, they're thieves, they're no good. And you'll get cancer and die. And I went, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll see what it... And it was the most beautiful awakening. And I write about in my book how I stood on this rock and couldn't believe what I was being shown. It was in my backyard and I didn't know it was there. Literally, it was an hour away from home. And that was how I started my journey of culture. And as I started to learn, it changed my life. And not only in terms of being an Aboriginal person, I went back to work and started in TAFE and I kept on getting all these promotions and all I was doing was using the things I was given. And I found this works in a contemporary world and it's something for all of us. And the last little thing about that story, as I healed, I just wanted to be the old me. Have you ever been through something? You go, gee, I wish I could just go back to when I was like that. And over a period of time, when I look back, I never ever became the old me. <laughs> something better happened. I became the real me. And I realised that I'd spent my entire life trying to be all things to all people and everybody else was writing my story. And I went, no more. I'm going to own my story. And then I became fearless. And that's my message to all of you, whether it's Aboriginal culture, whether it's Stoicism, find out, and this is the greatest guru in the world, even better than your three fellows in the bar. <laughs> they would agree with you. Yeah. I would say there's another fellow that needs to go to that bar and his name is Derek Zoolander. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's my man because when you watch him, he says, who am I? Well, you say a lovely thing in the book, which is about the, the messages that come to you that, or that can come to us, that they are something from you, for you, about you. I think that's right. Is that right? Close. Close, but no cigar. No cigar. <laughs> when I reached out to the, to the medical system for help, I found most of it made me worse than better. I read books on depression and they made me depressed. I found all these labels, oh, this is going to happen. I'm going, oh, wow, I don't want that. So that's why culture was so important to me. But there was one counsellor said to me, he said, Paul, I really can't help you. And I've gone, well, this is not much hope. But he said, I can say this. I said, he said, what is happening to you is happening for a reason. And he said, this is the message to you, from you, about you. And he said, once you get the message then you'll be on a path of healing. He said, you need to go and find out that message. And then once I learned culture, I learned it's the same thing. You need to go inside. And once you go inside and start walking your footsteps, life flows and you go in the right places. It still can be difficult, but you'll know it feels right. And this is the whole story about if your life is topsy-turvy and it seems like every day is just you're in a boxing ring, in our way, you're not fulfilling your destiny. You're not on your dreaming path. Fantastic. And when you're on your dreaming path, even though hardship happens, you're going, oh, I can handle this. And you flow and you learn and you grow. Can, can I just add I to that? that yeah, you're I nodding wanna, over there. I want to yeah, know what you're nodding. I'm like, <laughs> it's resonating a lot with what the Stoics say about nature. So um, they didn't necessarily have a God, but they, and they didn't call it a dreaming path, but the Buddhists call it Dharma. So it's your, your way and part of being comfortable in life and comfortable in your skin and contributing is your finding out your nature. So um, your nature might be, you might be a very caring person. So your, your path might be as a carer, as a parent, you know, doing something that involves looking after others. 
your path or your nature might be an artist or a storyteller. So you go that way. And then the Stoics say that if you follow your nature, you will have innate happiness because there's an alignment with um, who you are and what you're doing. And then they expand that nature um, sort of concept to the environment. So every tree, every cloud, every star has a place. So they also have their own nature that they must follow and that everything exists in perfect balance or homeostasis. So if you, if you go against nature or if you destroy nature, you are taking the universe out of balance and then, you know, kind of terrible things happen. And it's interesting, Seneca wrote about um, kind of an early version of, like, the climate crisis. He saw that ships were leaving, you know, Rome was expanding its territories, ships were going beyond borders, and he felt very uneasy about that because he said, that's not our... Our nature is regional and local, it's not global, and bad things will happen to the environment if we extend our Mm. our, um, borders. And, yeah, it's... uh, I think in all these ancient traditions, not that Stoicism is ancient compared to um, Indigenous culture, but in a lot of these traditions there is actually a very similar message. And I'd like to come back because it's right at the heart of everything for you, of, uh, you know, the relationship to country. But before we do that, I would just love for you to explain the control test, Bridget, because mm. I mean, in a way too, it's, it's, for me it's a bit of a misnomer because actually it, it sounds like something you're trying to something rigid, the control Mm. test. Mm. But in fact, actually, for me, it's been a kind of a softening experience whenever I've used it. There's been like an Mm. exhalation. So would you explain that as the basis of Stoicism? Yeah, sure. So um, the Stoics believe that we can only control three things in life. Um, Our character, our actions and reactions, and how we treat others, and everything else is out of our control. So some things are in our partial control, like, for example, um, you might you might have an exercise regime or a diet or whatever and you think, I can control my health health by doing this. But you could also get hit by a bus, you could get a random cancer. All these things can happen despite your, your actions. Um, so once you realise how much is out of our control, you can actually start to work within those parameters and also enjoy, you know, kind of go with the flow a bit more um, and enjoy things. I think a lot of stress and problems come from trying to control the uncontrollable. Mm. And the three things that they, the, the test kind of says, what can you con- control, mm. they are, I'm going to... Yeah, ca- your, your own character, so um, who you are and your values, uh, your actions to an extent. So Epictetus, who was the slave, he couldn't g- just go and wander out of his master's house. Like, his actions were curtailed, but he could always control his reactions. So um, if someone um, cuts you off in traffic and starts screaming at you, um, it, you know, there is an instinct to fight back. But the Stoics say you, you do have a tiny fraction of time to actually use reason to control how you react to a situation. Um, so that is within our control. Mm. And they also talk about, I mean, I'm sure everyone has this, if you have a disagreement with a friend and your friend gets upset with you and then you get upset because your friend's upset, it's like you can't control someone else's reactions and that's a game, that's been a game changer for me. Like I can control my reaction to my friend but I can't control my friend's reaction to me so I have to let that go. 
and um, how we treat others is always within our control. So um, we always have a choice whether or not to treat people well or poorly. Mm. Like, you know, it's, yeah. Mm. I've, I've found that enormously helpful just mm. as a little thing to carry and think since reading the book. Mm. Paul, can, I, can we backtrack now to what Bridget was saying about nature with the Stoics? Because that's really the beginning of everything for you, isn't it, in, in your book? Which is teaching. a lovely segue because I'll tell a dream... I wasn't going to, but I'm going to now. I'm going to tell a Dreamtime story about the beginning. But before I do, story is pivotal to Aboriginal culture and spirituality. Everything we do is story. So when you get around mob, be prepared for stories. We'll tell contemporary yarns, gammon yarns, which is make-up yarns. We'll tell you old yarns, all sorts of yarns. Because story is how we live, and this is where the Western world's got it wrong. The focus on science, technology, engineering, and maths is topsy-turvy in our way. It's important, and we had all that, but it was built on a platform of story. Story is how we learn, it gives us knowledge. So I'm gonna tell you a creation story. These creation stories vary across Australia, and the scientists will say, yeah, which one's right? And we'll say, they're all right, and you'll say, they can't be. <laughs> People say, why not? Because we have to have one answer and our people say, why? So you'll hear different stories, but this one is quite beautiful and explains country. So in the beginning, there was a big ball of water sitting in space. And I mean space, out there, Star Trek, happening, right? <laughs> big ball of water. And under the water was Guni, the land, the earth. So what's the big ball of water? It's a planet, it's planet Earth. How did Aboriginal people know we had planets, we did. I just can't tell you, but for 10 bucks, no, no, I'm not telling you. <laughs> but our people know about the stars. They know about the cosmos. We have big stories in the sky to show us our way at night and to help us live good lives. And we have big story of a day. Huawei the rainbow serpent was inside the mother's belly under the water and he started to wriggle. He's a metaphor for sperm and this whole story is a metaphor for, for, for you to think about. He started to wriggle and the mother went, oh, I don't feel so good. I feel a little bit of pain. I've got to move a little bit. So she started to move and she rose and she rose some more and then she rose and she rose and rose until eventually the waters broke and the mother was born, as are all things. So she was born. Meantime, our father up in the sky by Emmy, he saw it and he went, this is the most beautiful thing. I've ever seen. I've been here since the beginning of the beginning. Wow, I must go down and see what that is. And so he did. And so as you travel country and meet community, they might take you to the places where Miami stood. He might have a different name, but they'll say, the father, this is where the father stood. And I can take you to this place up in the back of the vineyards. And he got to know the mother and he built a relationship with the mother. So much so that they fell in love. And have you ever been somewhere or with someone where you go, I don't want to leave, but I've got responsibilities? Well, Biomi had to go back to the sky. And he said, I don't want to leave you because I love you, but I must go. And so he went back to the sky, but because of their love and they'd made love, she became pregnant. And she eventually gave birth, and she gave birth to the dolphins, to the fish, to the insects, to the trees, to every manner of thing. And then last, she gave birth to humans. And so if we all come from the one mother, everything in nature, what is that? That is family. This is really important because you think about COVID, what did we miss? We missed each other and we missed nature. 
For us, that's family. And so our old people say, if you really want to find peace, if you want to find well-being, go out into the bush and sit there and just be still. And then the love will come to you. And I promise you, if you do that regularly for at least half a day, you will feel the mother giving you that love and you will feel knowledge and wisdom. And eventually, if you do it enough, you'll feel animals coming around you and you'll say, gee, this is bloody noisy. I'm trying to meditate. <laughs> Listen to those birds. That's because it's family. And once you know that, you'll never be alone. And the world, 50% of our people in the world are lonely. But you never need to feel lonely if you know that country is your family and loves you. Thank you. Thank you for this story. Yeah, um, I, I, I just want to add to that. Like, I... I did this book, Well Mania, before um, Reasons Not to Worry, and I went to all these different wellness things, looking for inner peace, and um, tried, you know, colonics in the Philippines, and very, you know, kind of crazy stuff, um, so, you know, like crazy retreats. And then I went to Warrnambool and gave a talk, and um, there were some Indigenous women in the audience, and they were cracking up, and they thought I thought they thought I was funny. And then afterwards, I'm like, oh, thank you for laughing at my jokes. And they're like, no, we're laughing at you, because <laughs> you white people, you're so dumb. You just go and spend all this money looking for inner peace and happiness, and you could just sit on a log <laughs> and get it for free um, and get connection and community from family and friends. And, you know, it's like... We spend so much money outsourcing or trying to find the happiness and the meaning outside. And then we, we never get it. Some people live their whole lives, and, and I think we're going to probably talk a bit about time and how we use mm. it, but people kind of go from one thing to the next in an unconscious way. They think, okay, I'll, I'll go on this holiday and it'll make me feel better and I'll do this and it'll make me feel better. And things do for a little while and then they don't. Um, and rather than breaking that pattern, it sounds like with your breakdown, it was a chance for you to really look at everything in a, a very profound way and decide that it wasn't working. And people almost get there, but they don't quite let themselves get down. And so they're not getting those big truths slapping them in the face. Well, it's a funny um, thing, isn't it? Because one of my favourite quotes from the slave, Epictetus, was the more we value things outside our control, mm. the less control we have. And it seems mm. to me that, that that question of what we value mm. now is skew from both these traditions. I mean, both of these traditions mm. would say that. So what are, from both of your, I mean, there is actually a, a list of the four Stoic virtues, wisdom, justice, courage and moderation. Mm. And in the dreaming values, Paul, you list love, respect, humility and sharing. I just wonder if you could both talk about the things that we value compared to what their teachings were. So the, the four Stoic virtues are, um, I always forget, like I'm always on stage and I, I get to the third and then I forget the fourth and I'm like, <laughs> it's that thing, you know. Anyway, bear with me. it's wisdom, uh, moderation, Courage and justice are the four. Yay. Um, and they're all, if you think about them, they're all things that you can control. So you can control how much you eat and drink or how much you, um, how many late nights you have. It's within your control. You can um, control how your reaction to things is your courage. You know, like, do you face things bravely or do you run away? Um, wisdom is something that you acquire when you test yourself or when you're in a testing situation. And the Stoics loved hard times. They were like, bring it on, 
because they wanted to have a little bit of suffering so they could get the wisdom that meant that they could deal with the problem better the next time. So they had this, um, they had a very welcoming um, mindset when it came to um, the tests, the, the you know tests of life. And um, justice, justice was a really interesting virtue because justice for me implies a systemic thing. Like how do we as a society um, redress you know, inequality, things like we were talking before about the, um, you know, Uluru voice, you know, things like that. But things like that are outside our control. So, like, you know, you know, environment, like, you know, improving the environment, saving species, um, getting a constitutional recognition, ending inequality, they're all outside my control, but they all rely on justice as a, as a concept being executed throughout society. So... Um, it was a little bit, justice is a bit of a loophole in terms of a virtue. Um, so, yeah, mm. they're, they're the four. Mm. Um, and, Paul, what about for you, the, the qualities just that maybe Before I unpack that, I'd like to explore wisdom a little bit. Mm. In 1900, have a guess how many years it took for the amount of knowledge in the world to double. Anyone want to yell out how many years it took in 1900 for the amount of knowledge in the world to double? It was 100 years. In 1945, because we started to improve communications, the amount of knowledge in the world doubled in 25 years. Right now, the amount of knowledge in the world doubles every 12 hours. Oh, God. That's a problem. Oh, God. Because mm. we can't possibly absorb it. And this is the problem. There's never been more knowledge in the world, but my observation as an Aboriginal person, there's a complete lack of wisdom because we're so busy running around trying to keep up with the knowledge, mm -hmm. we're not actually taking the time to sit down on a stump or at the bar mm. and convert the knowledge into wisdom. So there's a complete lack of wisdom. When you sit with an elder, be prepared for a lot of silence and you'll go, oh, this is crazy, I better fill it full of noise, I'll talk. And the elder will go, oh, why don't you just shut up and be quiet? <laughs> because that's where the wisdom comes. But when an elder speaks, you'll go, wow, that was clever. Mm. That's because they slowed it all down. So be aware of wisdom. In terms of justice, mm. we didn't need all that mm. because we were grown with story and we followed, and we're going to talk about it later, LAW law. LAW law is about punishment. LORE law is about knowledge. And so we had the knowledge and we didn't need, we didn't need police forces. We didn't need jails. We didn't have armies. We didn't have any of that stuff. So justice was something that our people would go, what are you talking about? But in terms of love, respect, humility and sharing, they're the four cornerstones of, of Aboriginal values. And I mentor over 300 men. And whenever they've got troubles, we'll explore those things. I'll say, are you being loving? Including loving yourself. We grow up in a society where it's very hard to love ourselves. We get knocked at high school, all of us. Year eight girls are particularly savage. Our daughter went through such a hard time that we end up having death threats. Like I went and saw the principal and they said, year eight girls can't control them. They turn on each other. They're total, total psychopaths, all of yeah, them. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. So are you being loving to yourself, to others, to country? And this goes back to the biggest value that Aboriginal people live by, and that is the Nurumpa, which is the law, which is I must always care for my place and all things in my place. Right across Australia, for 60,000 years, maybe 100,000 years, we had 500 languages. We had full diversity. But there's no point in having diversity if it isn't underpinned by unity. And this is a big 
challenge in contemporary Australia and the world, we can go off and have all sorts of diversity and it's wonderful, but we need to remember underneath, we are one, we are humanity. Well, on that, would you just read that little tiny... Oh, um, well, there you go. Thing? Yeah, I'm going to do a reading, which is unusual. <laughs> and I actually remembered a book and I remembered my glasses, which I've never done before. <laughs> So this is a quote from Uncle Paul Gordon, who is an amazing elder that, that I co-wrote the book with. And this is his quote. In our stories, everything started from country and our people went out throughout the world and over time their skin changed, language changed, law was forgotten. In 1788, some of the forgotten children came back. Now, children, you are home. You need to awaken and listen to your elders. It is time for you to learn what you have lost. So what that's about, in our big stories, we didn't all come from Africa. In our big stories, we came from here. And in the Ice Age, we, people didn't come in, we went out. And so in our stories, people went out, skin colour changed, language changed but then in 1788 you come back. And this is a big story for all of you that might feel like, I love this Aboriginal cultural stuff, but I'm, I'm an outsider, I don't want to impinge, I don't want to get in the way, I don't want to be a problem, I don't want to be a try-hard, all those things. No, what that quote says is your family. And I mean that, I get teary when I say it. You're all my family. And you're home. You never have to suffer. And you're welcome to those values of love, respect, humility, and nupachi nupachi. We must always share. Imagine the world if we all did that. And the other thing about our, our values, the Western value system, the research says that success is based on materiality and achieving your goals, usually around power and prestige, hence the problem of social media. In the Aboriginal world, our sense of richness of life is about the quality of our relationships. And this is the challenge for Australia as part of the voice. This is the thing that I want to share with all of you. You have come back to country. You are family. You don't need to feel like an outsider. You are my brothers and sisters. We are one on this country. And if we can come together and share love, respect and humility, we can become the country that we need to be, and that is about me connecting you and our elders throughout Australia, connecting you to country so you can love country like we do, that you can feel part of country like we do, and then we are one in this circle of love. And Aboriginal culture is one of love, and that's the thing we need to remember. So to circle my whole conversation back, we need to remember that even though there's all this diversity, people have come from all over the world, once we're here, we're on this place called my country and Gadigal country, not called Australia, we're on this mother and we are one. And so by being one, then we harness the diversity and we go forward together as one. That is the challenge and that is why it's so important for us to listen to the heartbeat of this country because our culture belongs to the country. It just so happens I'm the spokesperson to show you how you can love her as well. Thank you. Thank you. I've never had that before. Wow. <laughs> no, I want to thank you, Paul, because that's, I mean, that was incredibly moving. Um, 
and generous. So thanks. Mm. It's a it's a really amazing moment when you read those words because, for me, it sort of was an in, it was totally an invitation, but also yes, as I said before, a challenge as well. Um, can I can I just talk yes. a bit about that just in relation to the Stoics? The only thing I talk about, um, bring it all back to those no, you dudes. Mu- you must, because um, I wanted you to. <laughs> what I like, so Seneca, I was a bit intimidated by Stoicism when I um, started doing this book because I'm not an academic, hadn't studied, I did first year philosophy, dropped out because there was maths in it. Um, but um, I didn't feel like I could enter the space, like I didn't feel um, entitled to go into a space that other people, like I thought it was other people's. And so I was very reluctant to do a book. And then I read a quote by Seneca, which is like, this knowledge we've started, but it is not our own and it will change in generations that come after us and they will add to it. And that seemed to me as a woman, as a non-academic, to open a door. Um, And I think when a door's open for you to walk into knowledge or a system or a um, place where you felt excluded or you felt shy, and then you realise, like, the shyness was for no reason because the people that have the knowledge, the ones that have a good heart and are decent, they want to share it and they want to be open. And um, the great thing about Stoicism is that it's very practical philosophy. It's not particularly academic. And it, it's useful and it can help people tremendously throughout their lives if they're dealing with some really terrible problems. And the fact that that could be locked off from people because... They feel like, oh, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a Silicon Valley millionaire or I'm, I haven't got a PhD. And so they deny themselves the entry. It's a real shame. So mm. that's why I think, thank you, Paul, for opening the door. Mm. Yeah. Um, on the subject of things that uh, the book illuminated for me, would you mind either talking or reading that little section about time? Because yeah, sure. the value systems of these books align frequently And the question of time felt really important to me when you raised that because there are all these things that Bridget says, you know, the Stoics say we can control or we can't control, but the one that we seem to forget is most important is time, our time here. Um, And we sort of take that for granted, that there'll be time. And you write very beautifully in this little section, if you wouldn't mind reading it. Imagine if more of us elevated our time to be the central organising principle of our lives the result would be nothing less than a total revolution in how we live. We would wake up from this fog that we have been in for so long now, where we live as if we have all the time in the world and put off what we really want to do when we retire, if we were lucky enough to retire, or reach this mysterious endpoint called one day. One day you will travel more or rest more or read more or write a book or play with your kids or start a business or move to the country or start a family. And then one of the Stoics, I think it was Seneca, said, how late it is to really begin to live just when life must end. So on that, would you talk a little about what they suggest in terms of, you, you know, thinking around time and in particular with, re- with reference to death? So they have this thing called negative visualisation, which is where you imagine if, if you're meeting a friend for lunch, maybe you're on your way there, you're a bit distracted, you're not looking forward to lunch that much as you've got other things on. Think about that friend dying just after lunch. And um, that will make you appreciate the time you have with that friend um, and really pay full attention to what's going on with them and your relationship. Um, Too often we act 
uh, as if everyone's going to be around forever, that we're going to be around forever, um, that, you know, friendships end before people die as well. Like, you know, sometimes you just lose touch with people and all the times we've had with people, you know, they, they can be taken for granted. Also, like, you, you could die, you know, you could die on your way to meet someone um, this afternoon. And so what you did this morning becomes really important because it's the last thing you did. Uh, and they talk about, um, I mean, the, the really fascinating thing about the Stoics, particularly the Romans, is their society was quite similar to ours. Like they had retirement and they had, you know, um, hobbies and, you know, busy work versus family life. And they talk about, like, you can live till you're 90, but you can actually not live at all in that time, but you can live till you're 20 and have these rich 20 years. And then, so they didn't believe in people dying too soon. They're like, you only die too soon if you're like 100 and you've not been present for your own life. You've not really um, lived it. And, and they suggest sort of practising, don't they? Practising being without, like rehearsing that someone might die. Yeah. They actually suggest these practical things. And one of the things I just want to note about both these books, if you're considering buying them, which I urge you to do, um, is that both of them have these practical tools. Paul's as well has these sort of messages. And one of them in common is sharing and dealing with scarcity. Um, mm. Do you practice that? Have you actually done the thing of going without shelter for a uh, night? Not, not planning to. <laughs> it's just when I've been locked out. Um, uh, well, Wellmania started, the first third of Wellmania was um, this ridiculous fast I did in Bondi Junction with a doctor that's now been deregistered. Um, <laughs> but it was a, a, a thing that Malcolm Turnbull, you might remember Malcolm Turnbull lost a lot of weight really quickly. Um, he turned up on Q&A and everyone thought he had cancer. But it was, he did this fast where he didn't eat for... Um, didn't have anything for two weeks and then just had a tiny bit of food for 101 days. So I did that program for a magazine um, and I really, it was really hard not eating for that amount of time. Mm. And, but I wasn't a stoic then, so I was just suffering so much. Um, and then of course became a stoic um, and looked back and thought, okay, well that, that process showed me that um, I can go without something. Like I can go without, if you, um, if you don't care about designer clothes, if you don't care about fancy restaurants, if something happens in your life out of your control and you lose all your money, you're going to suffer less if your taste, if you can survive on a vegetarian diet or one meal a day. Um, it's going to be hard, but you're, it's going to be harder to be attached to the thing that you could only afford when you were wealthy. So... The Stoics have this thing about suffering twice. Like you suffer once, which is you've lost all your money in a bad investment. Your second suffering is your, your pain at walking past expensive restaurants and knowing you can't afford to eat there. So the Stoics say you can avoid the second suffering. You can't avoid the first. But the second suffering, you can, you can practice deprivation in order to mm. acclimatise. We're going to go to questions in a minute or so, but Paul, I wondered if you might like to sort of speak a little about that because it's central for you, yes. isn't it? So an observation I've made, because I like to watch, so it's a bit creepy. I'm watching all of you right now. <laughs> an observation and also a learning is in traditional Aboriginal society and still somewhat in our communities, we're driven by our boss 
traditionally was Mother Earth. The mother told us where to go and what to do all the time. And she was our boss. But in the Western world, your boss is this thing called time. <laughs> and so it drives you crazy. I watch it. And I got caught up in it too. What, what happens at night? You go, oh, I wish maths had finished early so I could go to bed. You know? <laughs> and the clock tells you when to go to bed. And then it wakes you up in the morning and says, hurry up, you fellas, get going. And then you're, you're rushing to work and either the train breaks down because it's raining or you get to a red light and you all go ballistic going, this isn't right. It's because time is marching on and you're getting stressed out. And then who gets to work and just loves your back-to-back -back meetings? Mm -hmm. Oh, I've had so many back-to-back. -back, I've never heard anyone say hooray. That's <laughs> because time is pressuring you. Crazy. In the Aboriginal world, there is no concept of time. Never was, never is. And how does that work? It's because in our culture, things are timeless, so I'll now tie this into death. We have no fear of death because traditionally you would always live a good story. Mm. And so what happens is when we pass, that is known. And sorry business is really ornate because we need to grieve because we will miss that person, but it's not because of fear, it's because of love. And so what happens when we pass? Two things. Our spirit goes up into the Warrnambool, which you would call the Milky Way. And so to help our young ones with grief, we'll say, oh, there they are up there. Look, there's a new star there tonight. That's the campfire of, of old grandfather. And look, all the smoke there. That's the Milky Way. That's all the smoke. And in our way, we go up there and we reflect on our life when we say, did we live a good story? Because I'm going to go back one day and I need to fix it. And so we always come back to country, our country. So that's our spirit, but our body breaks into the, we go into the ground and we break down into the ground and we become part of the nutrient cycle. We become part of the grass. Kangaroo eats the grass, we become part of the kangaroo. Kangaroo does a poo, tree grows in it, grows fruit, we become part of the fruit. Bird eats the fruit, we become part of the bird. So over time, we are part of everything. And we're 60% water, so our waters go back into the waterways and eventually up into the sky and we come down as rain. And so in our way of being, we are part of everything. We've been here before, we'll be here again. So what's the point of freaking out about it? Just go with it and flow. And so the message is to live in the moment. And you'll find that with our people, mindfulness, tapping into what my sister said, silly fellas, you go and pay a thousand bucks to do a mindfulness retreat and freak out when you can't do it. We call that walking country. What did Westerners call it? Oh, you fellas go walk about. No, we walk country and we respect what's there because it's given to us and we celebrate the moment. And the moment has come for you to ask a question if you'd like to. Yeah, there's so much resonance with the stoic death, way of death as well. They believe um, that Marcus Aurelius calls it being returned yes. and you're returned to the earth and your body breaks down and feeds the trees and the plants and the sky um, so that creates the nature cycle that they refer to in their other teachings. He sounds raggedy. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Probably is. Smart guy. Uh, but yeah, very similar. Um, yeah, very similar connection to that being returned to nature, and that's why they didn't fear death either, because they're like, you, you just get returned to the place that you came from. Like it's not a, it's not a mysterious journey. It's it's the, the mysterious journey is actually life. Like, this is the, the mystery, like all of us here right now. The end and the beginning. Now, I don't want to cut off anyone if you've got a uh, question, so please put your hand right up. There's one down the front here and there's one there. 
Thank you so much. So lovely to hear the connectiveness between um, your story, Paul, and also the Stoics. And I think a common theme of uh, spirituality. Um, I've got a question for Bridget. And I was here at a session last week. We were talking about you being a good Catholic Christian in your upbringing. Mm. Uh, so just wanted to ask you if you see any reconciliation needed between Stoicism and Christianity or if you mm. see an alignment in your um, views for that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because my mum um, did her master's in early Christianity and we had a lot of conversations about where Stoicism ended and Christianity began and, um, you know, if you look at the timeline, Marcus Aurelius, the last kind of great Stoic, overlapped with Jesus. Um, but then Christianity just became such a big force that it, it, it quelled Stoicism. And a lot of the early Stoic texts were burnt by the Christians. So that loss is, you know, because of the dominance of, of Christianity. Um, some of the best bits of Christianity are... Uh, like, you know, the New Testament stuff, love, forgiveness, brotherhood, sisterhood, um, they're Stoic, but the Christians saw the Stoics as being too pagan. So the worship of nature, the worship of... Uh, Marcus Aurelius had this great quote, um, look at the stars and run with them, you know, a way, it, he just had this ecstatic view of, of nature. Um, and he... And yeah, it was very beautiful, but that is not in... You know, like, that, that's not what Christianity was about. It was about God has made all these things. It's not um, the Big Bang or whatever. So, look, someone else would be more qualified to answer that, but my, that's my understanding is that there's some overlap, but ultimately it was it did repress a lot of Stoicism. And then Silicon Valley brought it back, you know, in the last 20 years, and that's a form of Stoicism where a lot of the really good, you know... Um, stuff about being kind and helping people and um, we're all a community. Like Marcus Aurelius said, what's good for the bees is good for the hive. Um, and Stoicism has been co-opted by a lot of people who are much more libertarian and individualistic. So I think we've got to get it, get it back. Thank you. Thanks for the question. Down here on the aisle. Oh, hi. Thank you so much for this edifying talk. Um, I've got a quick question, an easy one for both of you. Uh, Paul, you began talking about Zoolander. Uh, <laughs> and I love wisdom that's couched in fun and popular culture. So I'd love to hear a little bit more of that if, if there's any to be had. And um, also over here, if, if you wouldn't mind qualifying for me, there's a book I've had since I was young that I've found great solace from the, reading this book. It's called The Art of Living. Um, I'm sure you know, but it's the book by, I've always said, Epictetus. But I think it's... Ep Epictetus. Epictetus. Or as my voice recognition called it when I was writing the book, Epic Tennis. Epic Tennis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I, I always thought it was Epic, epic Tetis, which I think in could be that. Could is be something that. like Big Head, actually. Yeah. Epic Head. Anyway, so it's, how do you say it again? I, look, I could be wrong. Um, this is the problem <laughs> of not studying this at university and being self-taught. Um, epic Tetis, I say. Epic Tetis. Okay, yeah. that's helpful. Thank you. And Paul, if you had anything more to say about Derek Zoolander, I'm all ears. <laughs> well, I don't want to steal his thunder, but obviously he's a legend. But the, the lesson in that, people judge what people watch in television and they get it, they get it inherently wrong. 
there is wisdom in everything if you look. And I gave a keynote speech to Facebook about six months ago now. And I spoke about um, what's the, 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 the beauty in the geek. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I talked about beauty in the geek versus some um, chaser, the chaser, the one that's mm. on five o'clock that just won the ratings. And mm. I was saying, you know, beauty in the geek, you look at that, and they're all giggling at me. I, I said, I watch Beauty and the Geek. Then I watch The Chaser and I try and answer the questions. And I said, one is full of wisdom and one is there for entertainment. Which one? And they all went, oh, The Chaser, that's education. I went, no, nah, wrong. I said, you watch Beauty and the Geek and really watch it. And what you see is this beautiful transformation of wisdom where you see the geeks feeling really uncomfortable and unsafe and not loving themselves. And you see the girls going, oh, I've got to look the part. But then eventually through the show, you see the girls transform and they'll say, gee, I'm learning to love myself. Wow. And you see the geeks going, oh, these girls are supporting me. I, I am okay. And you see this wonderful shift and relationships built, not necessarily marriage, but relationships where there's mutual respect. I think that's wisdom. And the chaser is okay, but it's more show off like, look at me. I know more than you. <laughs> and so I just do that. I mean, they're both good, but it's about challenging people you don't know where you will find wisdom. And Ali and I are both really into Yellowstone. What a great show that is. And every now and then you'll hear a piece where you go, wow, that's law. That's culture right there. Over in America with a bunch of cowboys. And it's wisdom. So there's wisdom everywhere. Everywhere you go, including in your workplace, on the street, on the train, it's everywhere. It's at the Writers' Festival. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, we've got a question. Uncle Paul, hello. Hello. I haven't met you before, but my name is Mundanara Bales. I'm pretty sure you would have known my late father, Tiger. I've met with him. Okay. But what came to mind, I just want to say, this deadly fellow next to me told me I should be here, so I flew down just now to make this. Oh, what? <laughs> From the sunny coast. But I, it's my first ever um, writer's festival, always wanted to come. Your book was gifted to me last week by this deadly fellow next to me, so I can't wait to read it. But when you spoke about connecting us as people to country, it made me think about my Aunt Mary Graham, who is an Aboriginal academic philosopher, political scientist from UQ. And Aunt Mary talks about this relationship with the land and it's the law of obligation and then it goes mm. into the law of reciprocity. Yep. But she says that the relationship you have with the land is then like a template for the relationship that you should have between peoples. Beautiful. And the relationship with the land is the first relationship. And it's, you know, in terms of relationship between people, that determines what kind of society you'll have. So if we could think about what you said more deeper and do some more research about how to form that relationship with the land, we'd have a very different society in terms of how we treat each other. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, thank you my sister. And we're running out of time, but just to add to that, there's a big story about Mother and the way for you to think about it is Alison and I were blessed in the last 12 months. We've got two grandchildren and we're like those grandparents that show you all the photos. <laughs> we can't do enough of it. But when those babies were growing in my daughter's, our daughter's belly and our, our son's daughter's belly, did that baby have to worry about anything? No because our daughter and our daughter-in-law 
cared for that baby. And this is the story about Mother Earth. The old people say, tapping into what my sister said, and, and in terms of your legacy sister, what a wonderful hero your father was in terms of what he did for our people and a big thank you for that. But what the old people say, Mother Earth, if I learn about my mother and you've got to learn about caring for the land and if I dance for my mother, if I sing for my mother, if I love my mother, and this is in a very real way, every night go out in the backyard take your shoes off, your socks off and rub your feet in the earth and say thank you for giving me everything I need to live, oxygen, water and food. If I do all those things for my mother, she will always give me what I need and so it has been for 60,000 years. And so we need to have that relationship with the mother and then once we build that, we can do the Derek Zoolander, go inside <laughs> and we need to build a relationship with ourself and the relationship with ourself needs to be built on knowing that we are loved by the mother and that you don't need to seek love from anyone else, but that's a bonus. And then you reach out and you build relationships that are unconditional, and then we will have a better world. And that's the message across the world. That's why I wrote the book. Uncle Paul Gordon is one of the universal wise people that needs to be heard throughout the world. There are others as well. And that's what we need to listen to as a collective. Thank you. Um, Unfortunately, as Paul said, we are out of time. Um, there's that word again, you know, yeah. time. Um, but I just, I, I, I wanted to say, you know, both these traditions come out of, the, the Stoics stood under the Stoa and talked and listened. And Paul writes about how his people sit around campfires and listen. And um, the quality of listening in this room today has been really beautiful. And as someone who chairs these things, I just wanted to comment on that because I think it's a reflection on what these two speakers have been saying. It's also a reflection on you. So um, I'll just remind you that Bay 22 is where you can meet both the writers and they'll be signing their books. But in the meantime, thank you for being such beautiful people to sit around the campfire with this afternoon. It's been a real privilege to hear you both. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.